If you would, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Am I on? Am I? Can, you get, can everybody hear me? I see everybody, Bill, waving at me. Thank you, Bill. I don't know if that's a good thing. I say, can everybody hear me? And Bill waved. He, maybe, he thought I th- maybe he thought I said, see me. That's like when I say to my children, can you hear me? And they go, no. Hmm. Well, I was thoroughly blessed by your comments last week, over last week's message. Um, I said comments because the comments are what really matter. It's where were we together as a church on that very, very difficult topic. And I'm glad to see that all of us desire more than anything to be obedient to God's word and not to our own prejudices and persuasions. You ever failed to appreciate a gift someone has given you? Your parents, maybe they bought you your first car and you ran it into the ground. I didn't even know you had to put water in batteries. Who knew that? I think I put oil in my car once, and I had it for four or five years. One time I was down on South Beach, and the thing just started smoking. I was trying to talk to some young lady, and I said, hey, girl, and the car just, and smoke just started coming out. Your game is whack when your car does that, let me tell you. But I didn't take care of it. Maybe your education. Maybe somebody paid for your education or is paying for your education and you're not doing right by that gift. You're not taking it as seriously. You don't study as hard. Work as dedicated on your your papers. Maybe someone gave you an expensive gift that they worked really hard for. I remember one time when Stephanie and I were dating, she, she bought me a beautiful fossil watch. It was a beautiful watch. She didn't have a job back then. She bought me the watch for my birthday, and I was so grateful for it, very thankful. And I, you know, as anything that is new, the novelty wears off over time, and you wear it less and leave it here and leave it there. And she noticed it in the floor of my car one day, and she just said to me, do you know what I did to to earn that for you? I had to wash my parents' cars for months to earn that for you. Why, I felt bad, right? I think we've all failed to appreciate a gift that's been given to us. The the question, though, is what do we do when we find out? Does that change our minds? Did you apologize for taking it for, for granted? Hey, I'm sorry for this gift you purchased for me or this thing that you've given to me. I, I'm really sorry that I've taken that for granted. Maybe you started using it or started appreciating it more not just in the mind because it doesn't really matter whether you appreciate it with your mind what really matters is do you appreciate it with your body do you show with the whole of your being and of course your mind in order for you to appreciate it with your body you have to first appreciate it in your mind you can't get behind something you don't appreciate the question is what was your response when you found out about the great gift that this person had given you and the great sacrifice 
How did you respond when you were made aware of your lack of appreciation for it? What about the gifts God has given you? How do you treat your body? What sort of things do you fill your mind with? How do you treat your family and your friends that are clearly a gift to you, as difficult as it may be to sometimes be in those relationships, we have to remember that we're in relationships with other sinners, but they're God's gift to you. How do you treat them? What about your church? How do you treat your church, knowing that that's God's gift to you? Most importantly, how do you honor the greatest gift God has given you? The gift of your salvation. What are you doing with it? Revelation 19 gives the imagery, 7 and 8 gives the imagery of a bride coming to meet her bridegroom. I said in my Sunday school this morning, have you ever seen how a bride prepares for a wedding? Every minor detail matters. The flowers matter. The place cards matter. The food matters. The venue matters. The dress matters. The hair matters. A big one that I, I still, to this day, don't understand. The veil matters. That is the most, that's got to be the most overlooked thing in all of the wedding. The veil and brides will spend hours and hundreds of dollars getting it just right because it's their wedding day. How are we, as the bride of Christ, preparing for our wedding day? The question I want to ask you this morning is this. How are you responding to the great gifts God has given to you? My prayer this morning is that you will appreciate the sacrifice God has made for you through the giving of His Son, and that you will respond in kind by offering your body as a spiritual sacrifice and by transforming your mind through the renewal of God's Spirit. Scholars speculate that Paul's motivation for writing Romans was his eagerness to preach the gospel to a church he had never visited before. It's likely that the abundance of theological information that we have in this book concerning the righteousness which has been revealed apart from the law is due to Paul's desire to be sure that the church understood the meaning and implications of their great salvation in Jesus Christ. It is the longest of all of Paul's books. That's why it's at the beginning of the Pauline epistles. Paul's letters are 13 and they start with the largest and end with the smallest. And Romans is the biggest. It's very likely that because he'd never visited this church, he wanted to make sure they understood the gospel and the gravity of the gospel correctly. Our passage, though, this morning serves as the beginning of the practical application portion of Paul's letter to the Roman church. Up until this point, Paul has carefully explained the meaning and implications of God's righteousness, which has now been uh, revealed apart from the law. And Gentiles and Jews alike are now privy to this 
gospel. But now in our passage this morning, Paul begins to explain the Christian's reasonable response to the mercies of God's salvation by faith in Christ Jesus as nothing less than to offer our bodies and minds to Him as our sacrificial service of worship. Look at the text with me if you would. The text begins like this. Therefore, therefore, in logic that's a conclusion indicator. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, this is to believers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This morning, I want to prove this point. Write this down in your notes. Since God has graciously given himself for us, since God has graciously given himself for us, we must respond by giving all of ourselves to him. Since God has graciously given himself for us, we must respond by giving all of ourselves to him. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for your word. May your word be like a wellspring that nourishes our roots, that heals our branches, and that bears fruit in our lives. Let us not simply read your word, hear your word, but let us heed your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one I want to make this morning is this. God's sacrifice for us demands the sacrifice of our bodies. Look with me, if you would, at verse 1. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The presence of the word therefore at the beginning of every or any passage ought to always lead us to ask this question. What is the therefore therefore? What is the therefore therefore? Our text this morning is the beginning of Paul's conclusion of his theological development in Romans. What has he been developing? Thus far in the letter, Paul has argued convincingly that the whole world, Jews and Gentiles alike, is sinful before God. Chapters 1 through 3. He has argued that the righteousness that God requires has come apart from the law, a righteousness that now comes by faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness has been revealed apart from the law, now it comes through Christ. He's proven that God has always accredited righteousness to us by faith, not works, just as he did with Abraham, but that this is now actualized in the life of Christ. Now that we have Christ and his spirit lives in us, the righteousness that God requires has always been by faith, but now it's completed in Christ. 
From there, he explains how the historical reality of our inherited sin and death from Adam has led to God's gracious gifting of righteousness and eternal life to all who are united with Christ. Chapter 5, verse 12 through 21. The implication of our unity, though, with Christ is that we are now slaves to righteousness and no longer slaves to sin. Romans 6. We no longer walk according to the flesh, but now we walk according to the Spirit. Now our lives are lived differently. We no longer gratify the deeds of the flesh. We no longer live to the law. Now we live to the Spirit. It's a new day. And all of this is based solely, all of this is based solely upon God's gracious and sovereign will to manifest His great salvation in a people of His own choosing from every race of men through His providential purposes in history. Romans 9 through 11. So that's what we have up to this point. Paul has explained God's mercies in salvation. The law couldn't accomplish the righteousness that God required. Not because the law was the problem. The law was good and holy and perfect. But because of sin in us. An ontological reality. It is, it is a reality of our essence now after the fall that human beings are born sinful. So what the law could not accomplish by giving us those commands that were perfect commands. Because of our flesh and because of our sin, now God has done for us by giving us his spirit. Paul says at one point, he says, we no longer live or walk by the flesh. We now uphold the law by the spirit. It's a new unique relationship. Now the law of God is written on our hearts and we respond to God by a heart motivation. So, therefore, in light of all that God has done for us, the passage says by the mercies of God, and in mind here is all of the 12 chapters thus far, all of these mercies of God, now therefore... Paul urges us to offer up our bodies to God as living and holy sacrifices to Him. So the feeling, the thrust of this word, therefore, right now, the push is therefore. In light of what God has done for you, therefore, what is your service of worship to Him? And he says this, Offer your bodies as living and holy to Him. It just goes to show that the word therefore is not made in a vacuum. It's not an empty therefore. As Christians and, and just anyone, really, we love to take the Bible and, and, and take passages with them. But no passage of Scripture was made in a vacuum. It has to be interpreted within the greater thought. And so as Christians, we're not calling people moral life because it's the good thing to do. No, Paul says, therefore, you, through 
the mercies of sending his son by justifying you through his blood, by being united with his cross, by being given his spirit. Therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual worship. Therefore. In other words, the call to holiness, according to Paul, is not unreasonable. It's a gift God has given you and even empowered you to do. This isn't unreasonable. So what? Number one, what type of sacrifice are we going to give to God? The Bible says a living sacrifice. So Paul uses the word living. It means literally to be alive. I won't bore you with the Greek. As a modifier for the word sacrifice. So he's saying, what type of sacrifice? A living sacrifice. Why would he say living sacrifice? Because every sacrifice at this point in history has been a dying sacrifice. Animals lost their lives. Of course, the Savior lost his life. But Paul's offering you or asking you or the, the new gospel calls you to a different type of sacrifice. What type of sacrifice? A living one. David says... In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Our living sacrifice, therefore, is to delight in God's will. So listen to what he's saying. God's not saying you, you have to give up your body, although, or at least your life, I should say, go and, go and give your life. In, in some, some countries, some religious times, there have, been, there have been religions that have been strange enough to say that a human being, and, and there, there are even religions today, I don't want to get too specific with that one, but there are religions today that say, if you really want to have God's approval on you, you got to die. you got to give your life in, in religious worship to God. But God's asking here. He wants a living. Your bodies are to be a living sacrifice. This isn't a one-time offering, though. It's a continuous, moment-by-moment devotion to God's will lived out in good works. Go back to our gift analogy. If we appreciate the gifts people give us, we demonstrate our appreciation by how we care for those gifts, by how we live. Christian, your sacrifice is an ongoing living sacrifice of your bodies. Number two, he says we offer our bodies as holy sacrifices. So these sacrifices are living, but they're also holy so God's sacrifice for us not only demands our moment-by-moment -moment devotion to him, but it also demands his holiness. Paul told the Galatians that the deeds of the flesh were obvious. He said they're immorality. That's the deeds of the flesh. You take the body, the people who live like this are not living or offering their bodies as holy and living sacrifices. He says they're obvious. It's things like immorality, impurity, sensuality. 
The first three are really focused on sexual immorality. Idolatry and sorcery. Now these are focused on our religion, our love for other gods and their practices. Enmities, watch the next eight because they all have to do with the church. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying. If that's going on, you're not offering your body as a living sacrifice. But then there's the end, the miscellaneous, drunkenness and carousing, and the things like... Those are the deeds of the flesh. But the holiness, the living and holy sacrifice, the one that, that really is when we live and offer up the fruit of the Spirit. Joy, peace, patience. and self-control. So, as Christians, our lives are to be characterized by holy sacrifices, living sacrifices. Okay, so this is an ongoing presence of the Spirit's work and the fruit. So what does this mean for us? We want to be careful that we never reduce God to a mere moralizer. Those who are ignorant of the Christian faith often perceive God as the cosmic killjoy. He's up there waiting. I don't want us to see that. That's not God. He's not waiting to zap those who fail to live morally perfect lives. Now, no doubt God will punish those who don't live holy lives. And no doubt he will discipline those of us in the church whom he loves who don't live holy lives. But God is not a cosmic bean counter of good and evil. The God of Scripture has given himself to be a sacrifice for our sins, making peace through the blood of the cross of Christ. If God has therefore purchased us with his blood, how can we not offer our bodies to him as living and holy sacrifices of the passage? Are you careful with your eyes, what you see? Are you careful with your feet, where they go? Any child knows this song. We sing it to our children. I sometimes think that children might be much more careful than adults. Discipline's real at that age. I catch Claire going somewhere, doing something, it's discipline time. But for us, we're adults now. The question is, are you careful with your feet where they go? Your eyes what they see? Your minds what you fill with them? Do you serve the flesh with its pleasures and the pleasures of sin, or do you subdue it, that is the flesh, your body, under the will of the Spirit? Therefore, in light of what God has done for you, have you offered your body as a living and holy sacrifice to Him? He concludes the verse by saying this, your spiritual worship to Him. 
we talk about worshiping God. We sing songs. We show up at church. We have a daily devotion. All of these things are external, but how are we bearing fruit of the Spirit with our bodies? What difference does it make if you read the Bible every day and yet there's no change in your life? People say to me all the time, how could a Christian act like this? He knows the Bible. He reads the Bible. He goes to church. He must be saved. And my response to them always is, Christian is as Christian does. What difference does it make if your Bible is weighted down with ink? If you... I have no use for that. What difference does it make when we tell our loved ones, thank you for your gift if we don't appreciate what we have? Therefore, therefore, offer your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. For this is your spiritual. But the verse 2 says something a little bit more. It, it adds on to our sacrifice. God's sacrifice for us also demands our minds. Verse 2 says this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. God's sacrifice for us demands not only the sacrifice of our bodies, but also it demands the transformation of our minds. In this way, God's sacrifice demands all of us. There's no part of our being, no part of our lives that God cannot say, that belongs to me. What about my work relationship? That belongs to me. Uh, what about my marriage? Oh, Let's, let, let me remind you about your marriage really quickly. Many, if not most of you, stood in this very stage. And when you stood there, you made a covenant between you and that person. And there's one other important person involved in that covenant. God. So whether or not you've fallen out of love, or whether or not she's not attractive and he's too fat, and he's too lazy, and she's too... I'm filling all the stereotypes, I realize that. She's too naggy, just go with it. You also made a covenant with God. All of yourself. God says, I have, that's mine, because of my great mercies. So it also includes our minds. Completely changed. The Greek word means to change the very nature, the very essence of our, of our minds. To make them, you know, I hear this all the time. You know, people will say, well, that doesn't make good sense. You know, or, or a man will say, well, I have to do that because after all, I'm a man. Or a woman will say, well, I have to be this because after all, I'm a woman. No, no, no. Listen to what the Bible's calling for. A metamorphosis. 
a change. What type of man? What type of woman? What type of child? What type of marriage? What type of single life? A new one. New mind. So the thrust of the gospel is never simply God's calling us out of the world, but calling to the kingdom. This is why Paul doesn't simply leave us with the negative command not to be conformed. Paul doesn't say to us, don't be conformed to the world. That's it. He says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Every religion in the world calls its followers to not be conformed to the world. I meet people from time to time that will say, yeah, my life, I used to be a, a, I used to be a you know, drug dealer, a gangbanger, or womanizer, or alcoholic, and I found Muhammad, or Buddha, or, uh, or, or Jainism, or Shintoism, or AA. All of those things move you away from the world so that you're not conformed to the world. But that's not enough. The Bible doesn't, the passage doesn't stop with don't be conformed. Every religion offers you that much. But the Bible says be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And both these words, both conformed and transform, have the same meaning. They have a passive active. You are passively allowing this and working in it, and you are actively pursuing it. What does that mean? The thrust of the meaning of, of these two words is not to presently allow the world to influence you, but to continuously be influenced by the Spirit of God. These two things are happen, happening simultaneously. A person can only fulfill the negative command not to be conformed to the world by both fulfilling that and the new one to be, or positive command, to be transformed. It would be deleterious, even, eternal, even eternally damning, if all we did was not be conformed to the world. So stopping alcoholism is not enough. It's giving your life and transforming it to Christ. Theologians, now, now this is going on, what's going on here is both of these verbs are acting. So something unique is happening in this verse. Both verbs have the sense of believers being acted upon rather than simply acting by themselves. Of course, human beings must work, and it requires our effort. Paul tells us in Philippians 12, 2.12, he tells us you must work, you must seek your own salvation with fear and trembling. But verse 13 tells us, but it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. The Bible maintains two mysteries. Number one, that God's sovereignty is absolute. He is in control of all things, including you. But also it maintains yours and my responsibility to respond and give to God the works he requires. Nobody should ever say, well, I'm waiting for the Spirit to act. When he does, then I'll be obedient. A lot of churches are built on the idea that when you get that shiver up your spine, now you can obey. But what happens when there's no shiver? 
What happens when you have every reason and justification to not obey? He transformed. Offer your bodies. This is your sacrifice. It means it cost you something to give back to God. What cost him everything. We know that God will accomplish his work of salvation that's begun in us. But how are we doing this and how are we fulfilling this salvation? How are we working to renew our minds? Renewing our minds begins in our baptism. 1 Peter 3.21 says this, Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So how do you renew your mind? You start with baptism. It's the first act of saying, I'm going to have a new mind. Why? I'm going to wipe my conscience clear through these waters by saying, I'm united with Christ in his death. There's no magic in the water. As you saw, we're going to repair this thing. This has been bad. But it renews your mind in saying, I am not going to accrue, to accrue the righteousness that God has for me without this. So we have to be baptized. And Peter says it clears our consciences. Believers, remember your baptism. Non-believers, if you have a guilty conscience, baptism, salvation through the appeal to be with Christ, will renew, it will begin the renewal of your mind. But another way is by meditating on the word of the Lord. Psalm 1-2, David says that the one who meditates on God's word is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. It's constantly being fed. It's constantly having its thirst filled. If our minds are lacking, if our, if our spiritual discipleship with our minds is not happening, if it's not where we want it to be, where is our life in God's word? We fill our heads with all kinds of junk, it's like our bodies. Go to the doctor. You have heart disease. Really? Well, I was eating McDonald's every day. Well, how did I get heart disease? Are we shocked by that? No, everybody knows, yeah, I ate McDonald's, smoked cigarettes, and drank alcohol. That's why, after all, I'm dying. Now do that with our spiritual lives. Never read God's word. And we wonder, how come our lives are in the same kind of destructive health that our bodies are no you have to be planted by the healthy waters of the word that's where the fruit is that's where the nourishment comes another way is by serving others you don't typically think of that when paul makes his appeal in philippians 2 5 to the church to be humble he says have the mind of christ what's the mind of christ it is to submit yourselves to one another in humble acts of service so you renew your minds through baptism, you renew your minds through meditation on the word of God, and you renew your minds or have the mind of Christ Jesus when you live in acts of service. And lastly, Paul tells us our minds will one day perfectly be renewed when we are glorified. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. 
For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. My mind will be renewed. I will have all of the answers to life's questions. I will have the perfect ability to live the holy life that God wants for me. I will be renewed. My mind will be fully renewed when Jesus returns. But we're moving towards that now. If you haven't given your life to Christ, your mind is still conformed to the thought patterns of this world. Until you repent of your sins and yield to God's mercies, you have no hope of ever shaking your love of sin and of ever being transformed by the power of God's Spirit. If you have given your life to Christ, but still see that your thought patterns are consistent with the world's, remember your baptism. Meditate more and more on God's word and eagerly stir up love and good works within the body of Christ, hoping that what you are working for will be completed when God returns to fulfill and give you that fuller, that final completed knowledge that you so actively seek. So for the non-believer, there's something to do. For the believer, there's something to be done. And Paul concludes this passage with this. He says, So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. God's righteousness will be proven through the living sacrifice of our bodies and the renewal of our minds. For just a second, I want you to grasp this concept. Your dedication and sacrifice of your body and the transformation of your mind is for God. Is that end not good enough, believer? Is that end not sweet enough? Do I need to threaten and show all of the darkness of living a sin-stained life? Is that the only way to convict the believer? Or was Paul not clear enough when he began the passage and says, Can I please just appeal to you by his mercies? Notice that this passage is not appealing on the terrors of hell. This isn't a fire and brimstone message. It's look at what God has done for you. Look at his mercies that he's laid out on you. Our God doesn't ask us to do something he himself didn't do in the person of Jesus Christ. Is that not enough? That by your holy living, by the renewal of your mind, that God might be vindicated before men? This is your spiritual act of worship. The light of God now burns in us. We have to shine that light among men. Jesus says when we do, in Matthew 5, 16, when we do, when men see your good deeds, they're going to glorify God. Whenever we talk about good works, we never really spend a lot of time on that concept. Well, do they save or not save? No, Jesus is saved. That's Paul's point in Romans 1 through 11. But your works glorify God. 
When we live holy lives devoted to God, we prove to the world the surpassing greatness of His Peter told believers that when they are slandered for their good deeds, that those who revile their good behavior in Christ would be put to shame. By our lives, we testify that God is good. That God's will is acceptable. That means that it is well-pleasing. And that God's will is perfect. It is able to complete us. We prove to the world and to ourselves the mercies of God at work in our lives when we offer our bodies and our minds to Him. Many of us say we love God and are thankful for the mercies of His salvation. But do our lives testify to our love for Him? Do others see God's will proved as acceptable and good and perfect by the holiness of our lives and by the renewal of our minds? Or do we treat God's gift of salvation with contempt by living according to the flesh? Are we failing to appreciate the sacrifice He made to give us such a great gift. I ask you this morning, if God has died for you, are you willing to live for Him? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your mercies of Your salvation. Thank You for Your gentle hand this morning. You have not come with threats, but You have come with a gift as we consider the perfect mercies of God, that you endured the cross for us, that you have made us your children, the family of God. You have sacrificed for us. God, by your Spirit, enable us to live for you. Amen.